Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Did Jesus die to make it possible for anyone to be saved, or did he only die for those who will be saved? the elect. In this discussion between Blake Quartwright and Jacob Rohr, they discuss this important issue and how it relates to evangelism. Blake affirms limited atonement while Jacob argues that Jesus died for sinners in general. This is part four of our Calvinism versus Arminianism series, and if you haven't already, please listen to the previous episodes, especially the introduction where we lay the ground rules for how this conversation will go forward. Here now is episode 140, Calvinism versus Arminianism, number four, Limited Atonement. Today we're looking at limited atonement in our series on the topic of salvation and how it works. And we have two positions, limited versus unlimited, the Calvinist versus the Arminian position. And so to get us started here today on this subject, Blake, can you summarize for us what limited atonement means and how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So the the shorthand view of how Calvinists describe limited atonement is that Christ's atonement was designed and intended only for the elect, that Christ laid down his life for his sheep and only for his sheep, and that this atonement ensured salvation for all of the elect. Uh, The atonement was an actual, not merely potential work of redemption. Uh, In this view, there's no possibility that God's design and intent for the atonement could be frustrated. God's purpose in salvation is sure. So it comes back to, you know, as we've talked over the last couple of weeks, the sovereignty of God view, uh, the way that Calvinists understand that view, and then also the understanding of man's position in relation to God, as we saw in the first discussion about total depravity, um, and then expanded on in unconditional election. Uh, but the basic gist of it is that the atonement work actually accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, and it was a completed work. In other words, there's nothing that needs to be added to it. Um, that's the very, very brief rundown of it. Okay, and what position are you uh, espousing, Jacob? I would be taking the, as you could call it, unlimited atonement or general atonement. But this is the belief that when Jesus died, uh, he died for the sin of the world, for the whole sin of the world, for every uh, person and all of the created order. Uh, that's under the curse of sin, creation, and humanity, and that uh, the offer of salvation uh, that God presents to the world is not just to those whom he has chosen beforehand, but it is actually to his entire created order in humanity. So anybody who hears the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, if they so choose, if if, if they want to respond to the call of God, they would be able to receive uh, forgiveness and, and such. Salvation. Okay, so in effect, both of these can work out the same, but from the perspective of Christ dying on the cross, we could ask, who, whom is he dying for? Is he dying for the whole world, or is he dying only for the elect? And so that might be one way to think about it. Blake, could you give us some uh, somewhat of a positive case here? Like, what are some texts that you would use to support the limited idea? Well, the first thing I'd point out, but not necessarily a specific text as much as just showing redemptive history, God doesn't extend an offer to all of Ur of the Chaldees. He calls one man, Abraham. Um, and then, as we talked about with total depravity, unconditional election, he chooses Isaac and then chooses Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael. So God is making a choice through history in his people and being particular about it. Uh, I, I also would like to add that a lot of, uh, while the tulip acrostic is very useful, just in understanding and summarizing these historic points of controversy in uh, Calvinistic thought and Reformed theology, um, sometimes, as has already been mentioned, the acrostic can be a little more damaging because it, it limited atonement tends to sound, uh, it puts the emphasis on the exclusion, like like there's those who are atoned and those who aren't, which 
obviously there's a distinction between saved and unsaved. We all agree on that. But I and some others prefer to speak of things like particular redemption, actual atonement, or definite atonement, where the emphasis is on not the separation so much as the fact that the atonement is completing its work. Um, But some of those verses going off of that idea of God having particular people that he's involved with in history. Uh, Specifically, I want to look at John 10, and we'll pick up in verse 11. Jesus is speaking about his sheep and himself as the shepherd. So I'll pick up in verse 11, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Uh, And then he goes on and talks about this guy who uh, is a hired hand and not the shepherd and all of this stuff. And then further down, Uh, Jesus is in the temple and the Jews gather around him and they ask him point blank if he's the Christ. And his answer isn't yes or no, I'm not. He says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And in this passage, I think Jesus is giving a very, like, he's isolating some of his own countrymen who are by blood the children of God and the saved people in in the sense of how national Israel would think about it. But in his view, there are those who are his sheep and those who aren't. And these people asking him if he's the Messiah are not of his sheep. Um, but then he goes on to describe his sheep that his father has given them to him. Um, and this also echoes what's in John 6, where Jesus talks about, which we already discussed um, in Unconditional Election, where Jesus is um, saying, those who the father gives me come to me, um, and I will raise them up on the last day. So that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the main passages I could kind of jump around, but that's the, the core crux. I think it's kind of in this, this passage here in John chapter 10. So your your point then is that he gives his life for the sheep as opposed to he just gives his life for anyone who would respond. And I would also add to that, coming off of the total depravity section, uh, I don't think, with, with that view of human nature and, and separation from God and enmity of God until we're regenerate, I don't think that there is a person who would respond apart from God's work and the Holy Spirit to regenerate them. But that comes off of, so, so that's where like all these pieces kind of fit together. Uh, there's people talk about being a four, four point Calvinist, but really the system is in such a way that they all interlink. In a four point Calvinist framework, which, which point gets left out? Usually it's the L, the limited atonement. Okay. This is the one that tends to stir the most controversy and, and rightly so it, it tends to uh, cause the most emotional response, I think. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I've heard some people say, like, I believe in some of the points of Tulip, uh, but not others. And I agree with you that it either all fall, it either all stands together or it all falls together. I don't think you can separate it. All right. So, Jacob, would you like to make a positive case for general atonement? Yeah. Yeah, I would. There's a number of different verses that speak about God wanting to save all of humanity, all men. For example, uh, in 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. And so I think this is a great verse to show the distinction between Jesus' death is not only sufficient, but it's available for all men, but it's only applicable to those who put their faith uh, in Christ, namely believers, especially of believers. So we have, he's the savior of all men, but especially of believers. In Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Uh, in John 1.29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he makes the confession, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then um, we revisited this passage in the past, uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 through 6, where God desires all men to be saved and Christ gave his life as a ransom for all. Um, and then even within John, it seems like John's going to be the battleground, but in John 3.17, God desires, he didn't send the Son into the world to judge it, but that it might be saved through his son Jesus. And so it seems as though the atonement is God's way of reconciling everything back to himself. Because that's what he says, and that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world, everything back to himself. 
All right, so what we have is some text from Blake indicating that Jesus died only for his sheep and some text from Jacob saying he died for the whole world. How, how do you reconcile this, Blake, within your framework? So one thing I would look at with all these is I think that, um, and I talked about this, I think, on unconditional election um, with the First Timothy verse about all people that I think that you can describe all people in a qualitative sense and say that there are all qualities of people or all, you know, all types of people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, like it talks about in uh, Revelation. And I realize that that's not necessarily the exact phrasing that is used in each of these passages, and I'm not going to use that as a blanket for all of them. Um, in other words, I think that both statements can be true, using that he died for all people in that qualitative sense, and that he died specifically for his sheep, um, because his sheep are from all people, yeah. not just the Jews. Yeah. I don't know, that kind of segues into what I was thinking about John 10. When you read the verse earlier in the beginning of the show, you, you, you added a word that wasn't in there. You said, well, you said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for, for, for only his sheep. You said that, you said only, but the text doesn't say only. And so what I think is happening is that Jesus is not making an exhaustive claim about who he died for but rather he is speaking specifically about those who hear his voice and know who he is and he knows who they are, namely the sheep. So to say that Jesus lays down his life for his sheep is absolutely true. Any, any Christian should affirm that. To say that he only died for his sheep, I think is reading something into the text that isn't there. Although at the end, and thank you for catching that. I apologize if I inserted anything into the, the text of my reading, far be it for me to presume that. But as we come into the latter part of the verse there, and the people ask him, are you the Christ? And he says to them, you aren't my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So I think... To that first verse, I think I could see where you're where you're saying that the the one that's floating there on its own. Um, I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. But in this second section here, I think he makes a very sharp distinction between the two. What verse was that, in John? John ten. John 20... ten. Twenty five, twenty six, basically uh, twenty five mm. through thirty. Okay, could you could you could you like restate that argument again? Yep. So in this passage, the Jews are asking. Jesus about his identity. Are you the Christ? Are you Messiah? Are you the one who's going to save us? Right? Because that's basically, I mean, a lot of that is wrapped up in the idea of Messiah, although I think they had a different understanding of it than what we do nowadays. Still, that, that idea of save now, right? Hosanna, save now, is present, right? And so they ask him, are you the Christ? And he says to them, um, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So he distinguishes that their belief is because they aren't his sheep. And then he goes on, my sheep hear my voice. And he talks about the sheep. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. So this is clearly talking about eternal salvation. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, which gets into perseverance a little bit, but we're not there yet. And then um, verse 29, my father who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So again, I come back to this, and I think that I think you're right that in the first part there, in verse 11, although he is talking about the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, there's not really a distinction there. But in this part of the passage, there is a distinction between those who are his sheep and those who aren't. And he says, he doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. So how would you interact with that? In John's gospel, there's a close connection between seeing and believing. And the quote-unquote, the Jews, the community opposing Jesus throughout John's gospel, uh, they see him work over and over and over and over again, but they, they never really believe. If you believe, when God draws people, you have a choice whether you can accept that or reject that. And it seems as though the Jewish leaders were, were rejecting that. They did not want to be a part of him. Okay, so let's let's flip the, the sides for a second here. What were your main texts that you brought up already? First Timothy 4.10. What did it say? Uh, it said, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we, we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, 
especially of believers. All right, and that's that's a good example because there there yeah. were a few that you brought up, but uh, this idea of all. So Blake, what's your understanding of that? All right, so in First Timothy four ten, um, Paul is giving like to Timothy this breakdown of like why are we doing what's all this work about? For this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. As I mentioned before, you can take that as the all people qualitatively or quantitatively, and it sounds like you're, you're describing quantitatively, like all people yeah. numerically. Yeah. And I would say it can still be the statement that Jesus died for his sheep and that there are those who are excluded from that isn't in contrast with uh, what Paul's preaching here um, about all people, because I think it's all people qualitatively, that is all types of people. Um, And I realize that there are passages like Revelation where that's actually said, like explicitly, but also um, the Jews would use a statement. The Pharisees would say that about Christ, the whole world has gone after him. But they didn't literally mean the whole world in in a quantitative sense. They meant a small group of basically this Jewish cult that was starting up in national Israel at the time. Um, it would seem almost that they were, they were speaking in hyperbole. I mean, they, they know that the whole world hasn't gone after Christ in that example. It's more like, look how many people, like everybody's doing it. You know, it's like the bandwagon idea, but they use the language of totality to express that. I think so. And I also, and I'm not saying that that's what Paul's doing here. I'm just saying that that's a way that that phrase can be used and so it's all, a possible interpretation. Yeah. And I would, I would just say that when we approach the all language in Scripture, it, I'm not saying it can't mean the quantitative, because I think there are examples where it does. But in this case, I don't think, or, or in all cases, I don't think we should assume that it's quantitative at every, at every stop. I agree with you. We shouldn't assume. The reason why I want to press that, and I disagree with you on that, is because I would argue it seems the Bible teaches that God does not just have a saving love for his elect, but he has a saving love for the whole world. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. Uh, John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not just takes away the sin of the elect or the chosen. In Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, the the John 3 passage. Just before I jump off, because I don't want to uh, totally leave the First Timothy passage, I think that's a really good one for your point, um, and I don't want to uh, just skip over it. Yeah, so, because yeah. I think it's it's important for for people of both sides to engage with the difficult texts. Um, one thing I would also say, just uh, even if it's not, you're not going to say all types of people or whatever else. I think the point of this passage is what are they doing? They're evangelizing. Who do they evangelize to? Well, they don't know who God's, who's going to be saved and who's not. The message, like what matters actionably for us as believers is to preach the gospel to everybody. The cool thing for me is like, because I believe that God is the one who regenerates, the one who, the one who ultimately uh, brings people to, to life spiritually, like it says in Ephesians, for me, the pressure then is off, right? Because now I'm preaching. I don't know who's going to respond, but it's not about how emphatically I preach. It's just about, like it says in the New Testament, it's by the foolishness of preaching that men are saved, that that was, it pleased God that that would be his means of salvation or, or of, of bringing people to saving faith. And so for me, I think that this passage still can still be held with its full force that we're supposed to go out and preach to everybody that, that Christ died to reconcile sinners to God. And we're those, all sinners. We are all sinners. And those who, who God regenerates and who, will, who, who then respond in faith, those are the ones who are saved, but we don't have any control over who that is. Our job is just to preach to everybody. Right. You're right. I don't know either, but I can say with a clear conscience, I mean, depending on what side you take here, that when I, when I evangelize to anybody— I can have a clear conscience that who I'm talking to, Jesus died for, and that God really wants them to be saved, whereas you can't. So we're talking about evangelism. We're saying that if you believe in limited atonement, that since you don't know if this person is elect or not, you don't know if Jesus died for them or not, but in a sense you have to assume that they are or else you wouldn't preach to them. Is that how it works? I don't think that's the case. I think the case is that we can make, just by, like it says in Scripture, the foolishness of preaching, that simply by telling people this truth, those who are elect will believe and those who aren't elect won't believe. I mean, I think at this point, we're, we're sort of at a minutia level of theology where um, we're, we're describing a lot of, I think, important ideas, but ideas nonetheless 
where the like in the practice the calls to evangelism should be just as strong if not stronger and i think you see this with people like you know some of the major reform preachers like paul washer um john piper some of these guys are making very dramatic gospel presentations and having these really like they're very much into evangelism. So I think that there's a bit of a miss uh, or a straw man argument out there that Calvinists can't preach the gospel with as much uh, effect. Well, actually, I would I would disagree. Now, I know we're talking about limited atonement, but, I, but I've had a lot of questions because we're not just talking about theology, but we're talking about how this affects our Christian practice um, because we're not just talking about heady things there, but it manifests itself in our everyday actions in life and how we live the Christian walk. And so I would say that, like specifically unconditional election and limited atonement, um, I would say hinder or at least make me question why I should evangelize. Because I can evangelize because it's something God wants me to do. I can do it out of obedience, and that is right. But ultimately, it doesn't really have any significance because whom God has chosen to be saved will be saved, and whom he has not chosen will not be, regardless of what I do. I will challenge that, I, and I understand why that view is there. I don't think that in, in an hour podcast I'm going to change your mind, because you're, oh. you're smart, you thought through your theology, and you have very, very deep biblical considerations that I think are important. So uh, I'm not expecting to change anybody's mind as much as to present my understanding of it um, as limited as it, as, uh, it is. <laughs> Go on, Blake. Just a little Calvinist humor. <laughs> Sometimes they're funny. For my view, it's all the more motivation to evangelize because every person that I that, that hears the gospel could potentially be part of who God's going to save, and I don't know. So all the more reason for me to get out and speak to them because those whom God has chosen will respond to the gospel, and those who he hasn't, he'll pass over, and they'll, they'll be like the rest of the world and, and hate the gospel. Um, so for me... It's, it takes that uh, a little bit of the anxiety off of like, I have to try and make this person understand. And rather it's, I'm just going to simply present the truth of the gospel and the hope uh, that's in Christ. And if they respond, and it doesn't mean I'm not going to be fervently praying for every person that I speak to. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying when it comes to the presentation of it, the weight of it is on God and, and the movement of the spirit in those people in regeneration. So for you evangelism really involves kind of an ignorance like hey i don't know if this person is one of the elect or not if they are then jesus blood atones for them and if they're not then it doesn't whereas uh, for you jacob evangelism is more this person is a potential and in the sense that if you were able to persuade them they could believe obviously ultimately the choice would be theirs. Whereas with Blake, ultimately the choice is God's. And so I think there is a difference there in, you know, going into it for Blake, there's less pressure because whoever God has chosen is going to be saved, whether or not Blake ever opens his mouth. And for Jacob, it's like, well, you don't really know that there are, there are no guarantees. Yeah. That might be a little, a little generalizing, (laughs) but uh, only in to say that I believe we're commanded to evangelize, and because Christ is Lord, I mean, just from a simple standpoint of obedience, the one who saved us is commanding us to to go and spread the news. So I think even if there was no other reason to do evangelism, I think that's more than sufficient motivation uh, to do so. Um, But I also think because it's the means that God has chosen— He's going to save people through the preaching of the gospel. That unless there's like special stuff outside of that, but that's not in His revealed word. What He's revealed to us is that we're to preach the gospel, um, and that that's the means that He's chosen to save people to work out the salvation. So, like we talked about with unconditional election, the idea of God choosing is just simply that God's choosing who He's going to save through history. You know, before all this unfolds, but the actual salvation is still something that happens at a point in time. Right. Uh, and in this case, relative to uh, receiving the gospel. But you couldn't you couldn't go up to a stranger and say, Jesus died for you. I think I could go up and say, with absolute certainty, we're all sinners and Jesus died to reconcile sinners to God. And anyone who believes that will be saved. I think no, that that's... No, 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 no. That's not true, though. It's not anybody who believes. It's only those whom... God has chosen, and then God... Well, because those who believe are those call. who God has chosen. 
I think, and that's one of those things where I think that, you know, the terms get really technical and we can, uh, and obviously we're doing kind of a technical readout of theology. It's totally fair to say, God, Jesus died to reconcile sinners to the Father and those who believe will be saved. I, I think the truest thing well, yeah, I mean, that I can say is that. those who believe will be saved. Uh, I don't know whether that person's going to believe, but if they do believe, I know that they're going to be saved because that's what... Right. So you, uh, can make, you can make general statements about... The, those who respond because by definition if somebody responded then they were the elect but you couldn't issue a blanket statement to a room full of people and say jesus died for you because you don't know if they're elect or not elect there's like for from uh, calvin's perspective there's no way to tell for sure right uh, in general i think especially when you're talking to people that aren't believers when you when it comes to believers they have you know, different people have different ideas of how to understand that because there is this idea of assurance of salvation that we'll get into more in perseverance. In P, yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms of just talking to a room of people, that's generally, and that is a fair, you know, that's generally a position is Calvinists don't usually use that you language. You would use more general right. terminology. Um, but at the same, it's, which is a kind of ironic because at the same time, the idea of particular redemption uh, in terms of, it's totally if, ironic, it, right? But, but, it, but it's ironic though because it, the idea of it in its in its deep form is that those who are responding and are being saved are the ones who God at, like absolutely sent Christ to die for um, and to atone in full for them. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting, I, ironic statement there. God has a saving love for all of all of creation, which. From the Calvinist perspective, is not true. God only has a saving love for those whom He chooses, and if that's what the Bible taught, then I need to get over myself and just align myself with those Scripture teachers. But I really don't think it teaches that. I have some more verses now that you bring that well, up. Well, hold on. Let me let me come back on that. So, Jacob, in in light of the fact that you just said God has a saving love for the whole world, how do you deal with the charge of universalism? I mean, are you saying that since Jesus died for all? all we all get in yeah so uh it seems like you have these two really strong positions the calvinist position is jesus died for his sheep and then on the other side you have jesus died for everyone in the same book (laughs) you know you have universalism and you have particularism how do you work that out universalism i would say is easy to dismiss because what i'm saying is that when jesus died for the world it doesn't mean everybody gets in there's there's a condition that needs to be met and that's faith. So what separates, uh, First Timothy 4.10, what separates all people from believers? Believers uh, have met the condition of putting their faith in Christ. So that's the difference. So to that, I want to come back to the John 6 stuff we were talking about last time. John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And 36.8, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the, on the last day. And then 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And as we saw earlier in John, there's the other line of no one can come to me unless it's given to him of the Father. So in a sense there, if I feel like there is a distinction here because he's saying there are those who the Father gives me, uh, and I will lose none. Whoever comes to me, I I will never cast out, uh, and I will lose nothing that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. So he is talking about salvation here and resurrection um, and eternal life. So my question for you then is if Christ's death is intended to affect the whole of the world, but there's a condition met there, how do you deal with this passage of God specifically giving people to, or the father specifically giving people to Christ and Christ actually resurrecting them and saving them? In other words, it's not that he's given him all all the world because then in this if this is describing a universal call to everybody and that everybody is uh, given the same opportunity, then based on this passage, all everybody would have to be given eternal life and, and salvation as well. So when Jesus died, it, it allowed the possibility for people from all over the corners of the, uh, of the earth to be saved. Um, but of course, that doesn't happen unless you hear the gospel preached. And so God draws, calls people through him and his spirit to, to, to faith in Christ. And if you are in Christ, which we'll get to in P, nothing can touch you. So, but it does say that all who the father gives me will come to me. He doesn't say all who the father gives to me might come to me. 
This is this, this is very like sim- this is very similar to what you were saying earlier, Blake. When you made the point, all those who believe, and Jacob said, "Oh, well, wait a second, that sounds like general rather than particular." And then you came back with, "Well, this is talking about only only the elect would believe anyhow. So if you believe by definition, you're elect." And this is sort of like going along with that here, where it's like, well, if the if the Father gives them to Christ, then they have already believed, correct? Well, I think the belief follows. He says, "The Father gives me will come to me." So it's a there's a the Father gives them to Christ, and then because of that, they will come to Him. And Jesus says that I would lose none of what He has given me, but raise it up. So He's definitely talking about salvation and that and, and uh, resurrection in that passage. And one last thought on that as well is this idea of uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, again, And this is all in that same passage, John 6, uh, 37, 38, 44. There's other stuff in that passage. Um, but if the, if the drawing is just a, a general possibility of salvation and God just throws out a, a potential drawing to all people— then this would mean that Jesus is going to raise up all of the people that that drawing is sent out to. So to the idea of prevenient grace, which we haven't really discussed in too much detail, and I don't I'm necessarily, just, don't necessarily need to get too intense on that, but, it, <laughs> but if that idea is, is what the Bible's teaching, I think it comes into conflict with a passage like this, where Jesus is saying that those who the Father draws me, I will raise up. Well, hold on. Uh, explain prevenient grace just briefly, because I don't know how many people are going to already be familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, provenient grace is the belief that God has a general goodwill to to all of his creation. Uh, I believe it says in Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says, uh, it rains on the just and the unjust and such. And so God shows uh, favor to, to, to all people, whether they, are, uh, whether they choose to be his or not. And so when the Arminian speaks of uh, provenient grace, uh, they're talking about, uh, God making a, a a call on a person's life to call them to to faith in Christ, and then the person who's receiving the call has the choice whether to accept or deny. But the call is a general call out to all. That drawing that's described is general and and non uh, compulsive or non uh, specific specific. Right. Right. So well, you, Blake, you would say that the prevenient grace doctrine is only a general doctrine that there's not like a individualistic version of it. Cause I mean, I can imagine God not necessarily always drawing somebody, but seeing a point in their life when they're open to it and then drawing them then as opposed to just sort of like creation itself testifying of God's existence. Right. And I'm not talking about, I mean, I believe in general revelation insofar as the, the general scope and the magnitude and the majesty of creation testifies that there is a creator uh, I don't think you're going to get any specific salvific information from looking at a tree, but you can you can be in awe of how how great God is. Uh, and if you deny God, then like you're already like aside from all the other stuff, you're guilty because of general. So general revelation is more uh, uh, just adding on to the fact that people are, have a, a guilt because it's so evident that there is a God. Right, right. That's not really my point. My point is, can you imagine a specific provenient grace, or does that defeat the idea of provenient grace? From, as, as you understand it. From my understanding of, of the view of prevenient grace, if it's specific, then all of a sudden you're limiting atonement to those who God is choosing to extend prevenient grace to. Okay. And you're in the same boat as the Calvinist. Right, like, right. You're so back then, by yeah. Just collapse into Calvinism. So Jacob, uh, what's your response? This is a hard question to answer because we're not God. We don't know all the ins and outs uh, of drawing, but... I agree um, with that. Yeah. So like this word, draw... Elko in verse 44. It's also the, uh, the same verb used in John twelve thirty two, where Jesus says he draws all men to himself. And so, and no Calvinist would think that Jesus irresistibly calls all men to himself. That would be uh, universalism. So it seems as though, I mean, maybe it can be both and. I mean, God gives it, if the starting point is God wants all of his, if his desire is for his creation to be saved in all of humanity, God would make an attempt with every person. Well, this is obviously a hard topic because we don't have a ton of information on God's procedures. No. Uh, I mean, Blake is right to bring this up as, a, as an important text for his, his uh, side of it, although this is less to do with limited atonement, I think. <laughs> but uh, um, 
I, w- I would say this, that uh, we can all agree that if God hides himself, he is not going to be found by anyone. No. So <laughs> even the fact that he is to any degree accessible indicates a, uh, a grace on his part. And, you know, the question is, is he making the moves or is he just making himself available? John 6 is more on the side of he's making moves with specific people at specific moments to draw them to Christ. They come to Christ and then they become saved, and then once they're saved, he does not cast them out. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think that's just what it's, what Jesus says, basically. So yeah, I agree. All right, so let's <laughs> move on to the next point. Did you have another point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of switching. Or did you want to come back on this more? No, no, no. Are we no. done with that? Yeah. Okay. I was, oh, anything to get me out? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, Go no, ahead. No, but um, I did want to switch directions. Um just briefly, um, because when we, when, when the Calvinist or Reformed theology talks about the atonement, uh, they say that Jesus only died for the elect, only those whom God had chosen, and in a sense secured their salvation, right? Right, Blake? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So uh, in Second Peter 2, verse 1, Peter writes, the false prophets also arose among the people, just as their role uh, also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And so another reason why I question uh, limited atonement is because it seems as though Jesus did not just die for the elect, but he died for all people. And that includes even people who might fall away, which is which seems like what this verse is talking about. He's talking about false prophets and false teachers who teach destructive heresies, and they deny the master who bought them. So it sounds like they were in the faith at one time and then uh, now have fallen away. I think that's an interesting passage to... I, I haven't really seen the Second Peter uh, 2 passage used before, so I appreciate you bringing something new to the table there. But I would like to look just a, a few verses before that in chapter 1, um, or one verse before that, really, he's talking about uh, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So I think part of this uh, is the the framework of what he's talking about here isn't salvation in proper, the way that I think in John 6, Jesus is talking about salvation or the way that uh, I think it is in Romans 9 or some of these other passages or J- John 3. Here, I think, what the apostle is doing is warning the people that just as there were false prophets in the Old Testament time, there will be false teachers that are going to come and they're going to claim to be from Christ. But what he's saying here is they're bringing these destructive heresies and that includes this denying the master. So I think that bring upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality because then the way of truth will be blasphemed. Uh, and they'll do this thing with greed, and because of greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So that's an interesting thing, their, their condemnation from long ago. He's talking about people who are, will be coming, and he uses this language of their condemnation is from long ago. So it's like, again, coming into the, a little bit of that idea of God's sovereignty, and that God has already, already declared judgment on those who are going to do this. And I would say that this master who bought them language isn't claiming that these people were saved or were ever saved, but rather this is a warning to the people about false, false teachers and the fact that they're going to come. And from their point of view, they're going to say that they're saved because you can't teach. I mean, we see this a lot with the prosperity gospel today. All of these guys talk like they're saved and they all preach like they're saved and they preach to their people that way. And it's dangerous because they're leading people astray. But I don't think anyone would argue that preaching that if you believe in God, you're going to get wealthy uh, and that that's the gospel, that those people are actually in a state of salvation. So I think that what he's saying here is that their actions and their teaching will deny Christ. Not that they're going to specifically say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus, because if they're doing that, all of a sudden, then they're not. Christians will see through that. I think he's saying that their actions, you'll follow them into their sensuality and they're going to exploit you through greed. So their actions deny him and are proof of the fact that they have bad fruit and they're bad trees. Yeah, so I agree with you. Like the main thrust of the passage is not about salvation. It's it's about false teachers and uh, warning his community of them. But just in passing, he, he when he's talking about these people, he says they deny the master who bought them. 
I don't think it, it's, I mean, it could be something that they're claiming, and it probably is if they want to win over people, but it seems as though the author is saying that Jesus actually bought them. I think the passage answers its own question there because he talks about many will follow their sensuality, and because of the, so he's saying their denial is because of their teaching and their action. It's not that they're, well, yeah, um, I, it's not that they I were literally with bought with him, though, because I think that they are claiming that. Um, and I think you can see that in, in the way that, you know, if they're false teachers, by definition, they're claiming some connection to Christianity, like that Jesus bought them, but their, their very actions deny it. If Peter really didn't think that Jesus actually died for them, it seems like he would have said it a different way, because the way you read it, it just sounds like uh, he's talking about these people and in passing, denying the master who bought them. And he continues on. It seems, it seems like he really believes that Jesus died for them, not, not the just they're claiming that or what have you, but I think the author actually thinks that Jesus died for them. I mean, maybe that's a point we can just agree to disagree yeah, on. Yeah, we, we need to move on to the next point. Blake, what would you say to uh, people who are listening, who may be Calvinists, who may, who may not be, uh, when they run into people of the Calvinist camp who, because of this uh, limited atonement, because of the doctrines of grace that they are uh like very special special (laughs) special there we go special and i mean i am and you're not well if you are the one chosen by god by definition you are special right yes but there's a certain way you can act about that okay so what's that way well i mean you should question you should okay so like what do you think about when people when calvinists act really snooty towards okay, others who oh, yeah, yeah, yeah i mean I the think, unelect and this might just be because i grew up in an arminian background and this was a slow process for me it wasn't something that i just like switched on the light and i was like oh i'm a calvinist now you know it was a long study so for so for me like maybe i missed this state but a lot of people and i, and I don't tend to see it with the older more mature calvinists and indeed many of them condemn that kind of behavior and would go so far as to say that people christians who act that way are in sin and need to repent because what they're doing is not glorifying God or honoring his free gift and not, and not becoming of a Christian because they're boasting and um, their very actions are, are becoming arrogant and, and becoming a stumbling block to other people. But for me, I mean, I think if anything, these doctrines have given me a deeper appreciation for the fact that God loved me even though I was an enemy and a sinner and, and it wasn't because I was special or I was smart enough or soft and hard enough to believe and respond, but it was because God for his own glory decided I'm going to pick you not because you're better than anybody else, not because you are smarter or anything else than anybody else. Um, and I think we see that through scripture. God is constantly picking the least likely people. And to me, that's a, that's a great comfort. And I think it should lead to humility not arrogance. And I think part of it, and this is more of a, not so much specific to the theology as a commentary on evangelicalism. And, but I think part of this, this neo-Calvinism movement, right, this resurgence of reformed theology is that in general, and I'm not saying any specific churches here, but in general, the American evangelical church has gotten very um, shallow and emotion-based, and they're not giving any intellectually robust engagement with theology. They're just, well, just love God and, and it's yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. And well, there's, we, there's also a very strong emphasis on the first timer where every seeker week, sensitive, right? Every week is a, an evangelism sermon. Mm-hmm. And if you're always evangelizing, you know, obviously that's a good thing, but like at the same time, just speaking as a pastor, you do have to make decisions, content decisions about, mm-hmm. are you focusing on disciples? Are you focusing on those who are looking to deepen their faith and challenging them, or are you focusing on the person who, for whom Christianity is a foreign concept and Christianese is an unknown tongue? So uh, you, you really do have to make those decisions, and a lot of these bigger churches, they just focus on the missional side of things on the Sunday service. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's yeah, their decision. Absolutely. And I'm just saying, I think part of the a side effect of the general contemporary, and not just that, but also a move away from intellectual Christianity, you know, away from any sort of intellectual assent with Christianity, where it's just believe it, name it, whatever, whatever statements people are making. Uh, but at the same time, this generation was pushed 
very hard to get education, to become very smart, to, to get college degrees. And then they go to the church and ask for questions. And I, fortunately, I didn't have this experience here. I'm very grateful for that. But That's right. But other people, uh, you know, I, I know people that have walked away from the faith altogether because they asked questions and their pastor or priest or whomever just dismissed it and said, well, that's not really important or that doesn't, and they wouldn't engage the question. Yeah. So yeah. the other side of that is I think a lot of this neo-Calvinism movement is a result of that broad stroke of evangelical Christianity that was kind of a little bit shallow, shallow. but you know, emotional, but, it, but kind of shallow. And so they were looking for something deeper yeah. and they found it when they bumped into this reform theology. Cause this, I mean, we've been talking for how many hours now about one aspect of doctrine in, in mm-hmm. salvation, the- you know, soteriology. It's a very deep, dense topic. And obviously there's a lot of density on the Arminian side too, but it's just interesting that that's kind of, I, th- I think that's part of that trend. And so, and this could be true of any aspect of knowledge where somebody suddenly like feels like the, the blinds have come up on them and all of a sudden they can, mm-hmm. they can see clearly. I think there's a tendency just in human nature to get built up with that. I don't know that it specifically has to do with limited atonement as much as, whoa, no one ever taught me this and now I know it and you guys don't know it and I know it and I right. need to tell you why you're you, wrong. You had used this expression to me earlier where you said caged. So what, what can you, Blake, uh, can you talk about like, what does it mean to be a caged uh, Calvinist? So um, I, I found out about this term through one of my Calvinist friends, and then I've seen it in reform Facebook groups that I'm in. And uh, there's a term they use called uh, cage stage, which is basically like when you, when you first, you know, the, like I was saying, the lights come on and all of a sudden, wow, I see that, you know, I'm no longer resisting this tulip thing. I get, I get it like, whoa. And now you feel the need to argue with every person you meet. You know, there's like the meme of the guy, like, you know, it's like 50 urinals and the guy walks all the way to stand next to the other guy and he goes, Hey, have you heard about the doctrines of grace? Like it's that kind of person. Um, and, and the thing is there's a stereotype for a reason. Uh, Cause they kind of, they kind of do that. They Part walk like up that. to you, yeah. uh, even though there's all these other spaces and they're going to come right next to you. So they can tell you about the doctrines of grace and why you're wrong. Uh, and, and that's really an immature behavior. And unfortunately, it's one that's very prevalent because a lot of people got into this at the same time with this neo-Calvinism in the last 10 years or so. And because of that reform resurgence, so to speak, or the young restless reform movement, as they kind of, they dubbed it for a little while, like there's a tendency to be a lot of these cage stage people um, where they just, that's all they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about uh, eschatology. They don't want to talk about ecclesiology or any of these other really important aspects of theology, you know, the church, the end times. All they want to talk about is tulip. So what would you, let's say somebody in that stage is listening right now. What would you say to them? Hi. <laughs> I would also say in seriousness, I think, I think it just takes prayerful consideration. And the fact is ultimately, which is kind of ironic as we hit on in the first session, your soteriology is not what saves you. In other words, your, your theology of salvation, how you understand the salvation process, like whether you believe in Arminianism or Calvinism is not the determining of factor of salvation. Like you don't have a, have to have a perfect theology to be saved. Thank God. So stop it. Like take, you know, just, just like think about, especially if you're someone like me who came into it uh, through study and prayer and, and interaction with other people and challenging them. Think about where you were when you totally disagreed with it. Don't, don't assume that everybody's an idiot because there's very, there's smarter people than me that are Arminians. And, and mm-hmm. have been for, for their whole life. So I don't think that it's because I'm so, you know what I mean? And would you say that, there, that it's possible to be an Arminian or an open theist and still be one of God's elect? Is that possible? I mean, I think there's probably elect Mormons. I think there's probably elect Catholics. There's probably elect people from all, all different. Whoa. And, and the reason I say that is because it's not about the church. It's not about the accuracy of the God, uh, the, the full accuracy. I'm going to qualify this as I do with everything in theology. Accuracy of gospel presentation is very important. But I do believe that God has the power to save people and, and choose people even out of groups that are teaching something that's not totally biblical um, and still save them because he's chosen them, even though they're caught up in this thing. Maybe they never know anything else. And maybe they, they, they go to a Mormon church. They believe in Jesus in the gospel, you know, they hear the gospel, even a skewed version, they believe it and they're in a car accident and they die, you know, three days later and they don't have any time to ever discover, wait a second, these guys believe some stuff that's really not what the Bible teaches. I mean, for me, this view is all the more gracious in that it's because of that, because... Well, it's certainly not dependent on the person. Exactly. As, as much, well... Yeah. Take some pressure to, off that way. Yeah, compared to being on God. Uh, Jacob, what, what's your response to all this? Well, I appreciate you taking time to uh, address that cultural issue because... 
Uh, a lot of people see that and a lot of people get turned off. Now that doesn't make it necessarily wrong. It just makes it what it is. And so we shouldn't deem something as right or wrong based on how somebody presents it uh, because we're all flawed. I've appreciated this conversation so far. I'm looking forward to irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. And I do have one last question on limited atonement. One last question, because I, I, I just want to make sure I get this right. So from your perspective, Blake, Jesus died only for the elect. Therefore, only their sins are atoned for. It means the rest of the non-elect have to pay with it for their lives, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's the basic understanding is that, um, like it says in Romans 5, while we were sinner, you know, but God shows his love for us, and he is writing to, to Christians, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, the, for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know, there's the wrath of God against the unjust, which all of us fall under yeah. without the specific atonement of Christ. Okay, so then in John one twenty nine, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, I would come back and say, if you're going to, you know, we're at the end, so I don't want to engage with a full like exegesis right now, uh, even though that'd be fun. I would just bounce that back to you. If your understanding of that is that he's taken away the punishment, like that he takes away the sin. If you're understanding that to mean that there's no more sin and thereby there's no more judgment. I think that that counters what we see in scripture about the fact that there is a judgment and there is God's wrath to be poured out. So if the sin is taken away, why is his wrath still poured out? Because the work of Christ has not been applied to that person because their refusal to believe. John three thirty six. He who has a son has life. He who does not, the wrath of God abides on him. All right. Well, we're going to have to right. wrap it up okay. here because that's the last thing I have to say. All right. Uh, Blake, give us a little conclusion about limited atonement. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked this little write up that I saw and I thought they said it better than I could. So I'm just going to read it. Uh, but for me, like when I first heard about Tulip and I, you know, a couple of years ago when I was debating it with my friend, I thought it was just the most awful concept I'd ever heard. Um, I thought it was offensive. I thought it was really like you were saying, like it, it's elitist, it's all this stuff. And then I started to study it more and I read it and I read these passages and I realized that at least to my understanding of it at this point in, in my life, I can see it as a gracious thing and as a very, and as a very gracious thing even because we didn't really get into this too much, but basically the atonement can be limited in its scope. In other words, how many numerical people uh, is it affected to, you know, is it the whole world or is it specific people? And then what is its effect, right? Is it limited uh, in that it's a opportunity, it makes everybody savable, but it doesn't guarantee salvation for any, or does it actually save? And so for me, I actually think the Arminian view double limits because Arminians aren't universalists and they believe you have to hear the gospel to even have the ability to, to be saved. And not everybody, people have died without ever hearing the gospel. So by definition, there are people that haven't been saved, haven't had the opportunity, right? So so the atonement is still limited in scope, but it's limited by uh, the preaching, you know, where the gospel has been preached, um, which I would agree with on the, the Calvinist side as well. But then it's also limited in that the effect is limited to an opportunity. It doesn't actually cause people to be saved in and of itself. They have to do something first, where I would say they're dead in sin, and unless God does it, they don't have a chance. And so for me, the limited atonement basically shows that God loves his people with a love that actually saves them from their sin, as opposed to the love of uh, unlimited atonement, where God's love is more general in nature. Um, With unlimited atonement, he loves everyone in general, but saves no one in particular in the end. And in fact, he leaves the matter of salvation up to them. So this is more of a thought, and I don't necessarily have an answer to this. It's just a consideration. Which is more loving, a love that actually saves people or a love that merely makes them savable or makes it possible to save those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And I would add from the total depravity view and are unable to choose God. But that's my Mm. uh, summation of of that view. Uh, All right. Well, thanks so much for that, guys. Uh, Jacob is uh, grimacing and uh, gesticulating, but he's going to have to wait till next time if he wants to bring up any points because we're out of time for today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Just a couple of quick comments before we close out here. First of all, we do have a poll open. So if you want to vote on what position you think won the day, please log on to restitudio.org and search for episode 140, Calvinism versus Arminianism number four, Limited Atonement, and pick who you think won. 
As for the results of our vote from last week, we're starting to get a little bit more participation, although only a, a very small percentage of those who actually download and listen to this, these episodes are interested in voting. But be that as it may, ended up being Blake again. Unconditional election won with 13 votes over free will, which only got five. So there you have it. Uh, please log on and vote if you're interested in that. And I just wanted to mention a couple of comments that have been coming in. We've had really great engagement, especially on this last episode on an unconditional election, which is really, really the most critical element, in, in my opinion, of the whole Calvinist system. Emily writes, Hi there. I really appreciated this episode. Thank you. I was looking through the list of podcasts, looking for one about the evangelical view of Israel and Bible prophecy. I don't know what to think about this, and I've never studied it. I couldn't find a podcast on this. Is there one? Thanks. Well, uh, Emily, in fact, there is not a podcast I've done on that subject. I tend to stay away from the speculative prophecy stuff, especially when people start saying, oh, this applies to America or modern Israel. Not to say I'm not open to that possibility, but uh, as far as Israel and prophecy goes, I really enjoyed some of the work that Steve Gregg did. Now, he is a preterist, and I am not, so uh, I'll make a distinction there, but uh, some of his stuff is pretty good. Steve Gregg, he's at the Narrow Path and if any of you listeners have good stuff on Israel and prophecy, please reply to Emily there on episode 139 so that she can get that info. And we also had a comment by Kevin George. He writes, Blake, number one, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is the primary principle God uses as a basis to choose. It is a principle, however, not an obligation, so there may be occasional exceptions. We should not make the mistake of thinking that the exceptions are the rule, the norm. Two, in Romans 8, 29, we read, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his Son. To foreknow is to know from before. This is a reference toward historical believers, such as Abraham, whom God foreknew in real history, and who also predestined at the resurrection to be conformed to the resurrected Christ. This has nothing to do with choosing specific individuals before creation. Somehow, Kevin left out point three. I don't know if we'll ever know what it was. And then he jumps to point four. Jesus had no regard for this doctrine of predestination, as is clearly shown when Quote, he marveled because of their unbelief, end quote, Mark 6, 6. And when he chose to teach in parables to prevent people from believing, Mark 4, 12. Point number five, in Romans 8, 38, these words are being ignored. Quote, unquote, I am persuaded. This is Paul speaking about his personal persuasion that he and the church at Rome will not allow any of the listed things to separate them from the love of God. The passage should not be read without this preconditional statement, as Calvinists do, because it then gives a distortion to what he is really saying. History bears out that the church in Rome did endure faithful through the persecution that arose, and that there are many scriptural warnings about others who will not endure and will not remain faithful. We must not skip conditional statements and make a doctrine that is a distortion of what was written. I agree with Jacob that the results of salvation are predestined or predecided, not the individual persons. Okay, well, this comment that Kevin made here generated a ton of responses, and I'm, I, there's no way I could read them all out. I'm just going to read out Matt, since he was the first one to re reply. He writes, Kevin, you may find the following quote in linked article, Edifying, and then he quotes from a Desiring God article, which says, The hope of preserving man's power of self-determination and salvation is futile in view of verse 30, where it says, those whom he called, he also justified. If all the called are justified, and if justification is only by faith, then the call must secure the faith because it secures the justification. But if the call of God brings about faith, then it is not the self-determining power of man that brings him to salvation. Therefore, even if God did base his predestination on faith which he foresaw, it was a faith which he himself intended to create, so the whole motive for the idea of foreknown faith collapses. It leaves us with the freedom and right of God to elect or choose whom he will call effectually into faith. For God to predestine someone on the basis of faith which he himself creates is the same as basing predestination on the basis of election. End quote. And then he drops a link to the article on Piper's website. 
then we had replies from Trevor, a lengthy reply from Mark, a reply from Seth, and then Kevin replied again, and then that spawned a reply from Justin and Mark, and then a super, super long reply from Trevor, and then Kevin replied again, and so it goes. So, hey, guys, thanks so much for your engagement on this. If you are interested in this subject, please jump on there, and especially if you're on the Arminian side, because it appears that Kevin is sort of like single-handedly holding that position. So come online and join in the conversation on Unconditional Election, episode 139, or on this episode, Limited Atonement, episode 140. Thanks so much for tuning in. Just wanted to mention that I do have some more information about atonement. I have uh, a full paper that I've written on the subject that surveys the biblical text related to the subject, as well as all of the various major historical positions that Christians have taken over the last 2,000 years. So check that out in the show notes for this episode. It's called Why Did Jesus Die? I've got a video presentation as well as a more scholarly article with lots of footnotes. Also, I have some other stuff on Atonement that you can check out if you click on other posts on this subject in the notes. If you want to know more about Jacob or Blake, check out the introductory episode where I give a little a little brief bio of each of them. And that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.